0: Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary and to prepare to concentrate on studying the word this morning. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again that we have this opportunity and privilege to study your word freely in this nation. Father, we pray that you would continue to keep this nation strong, that you would continue to provide good leaders, and that you would continue to protect the upper echelons of power in this nation from the insidious influence of false doctrine, pacifism, and the multicultural ideas that are so prevalent today. We must recognize that we are engaged in a war, a physical war, that is just one other manifestation of the spiritual conflict that rages unseen around us. The only hope, the only solution, of course, is Bible doctrine. The only way that we can handle whatever trauma, whatever attacks may come in the future is through the doctrine that we have in our own souls. And the only way that this country will be able to make the right decisions is because the leadership is influenced by those who have doctrine and can make uh, decisions from correct priorities. And Father, we know that there are many in leadership positions who are believers, and we pray for them, especially that they would have the courage and the ability to make their points clear. Father, we pray that you would continue to protect this nation and that you would watch over us as we continue to provide missionaries that go out throughout the world and we continue to be a strong support for Israel. And that, too, is only because of the influence of the evangelical Christians, the Bible-believing Christians in this nation, and those who truly understand the importance of Israel and the distinctiveness of Israel are even shrinking among those who are believers. Now, Father, this is the, one of the reasons you have raised up this nation and protected it for so many years, and we pray that you would continue to watch over us. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we would be able to understand the things that we study and be challenged by them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we are going to begin a section that goes from this chapter down through chapter 6 that will deal with a subject that is controversial for some that is misunderstood by many and misapplied by even more and that is the issue of church discipline. Church discipline is that doctrine that refers to the execution of disciplinary action within a local body or assembly of believers in order to protect it from the influence of licentious carnality in its midst. A problem with Church discipline, on the one hand, is there are those who are so legalistic that they want to apply church discipline to just about any sort of overt sin that they see come along. And the problem that that is a part of is that most evangelical Christians just don't understand the sin nature and the predominance of the sin nature in the believer's life. This first really hit me, although I knew this and had been exposed to it for many many years but a classmate of mine in the doctoral program at Dallas Seminary published an article in a theological journal a few years ago that was sort of a critique of Louis Berry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Seminary, some of the things that Dr. Chafer taught on the spiritual life. And as I read the article, and trying to keep my blood pressure from going up too much, I, uh, came to the conclusion, and in the conclusion, this guy wrote, had the sense, he said, although Dr. Schaefer had a high view of Scripture and a high view of the Holy Spirit, he had a low view of regeneration. Because he did not realize that regeneration limits the power of the sin nature after salvation. I read that and I thought, this is absolutely absurd. Where in the world, these guys who live in ivory towers, working in some seminary, surrounded by a bunch of Christians all the time, who are also legalistic, just have no concept of what goes on in the real world. You see, you have to, uh, they they need really a good dose of being in the pastorate. And and just uh, spending a couple of years dealing with sheep, I got a call from a Young pastor this last week and he was kind of laughing and he said, well, Dr. Dean, he said, uh, so what do you do when you have somebody who comes into your office and they start off talking about how much they like you and how much they support your ministry and, and then as they talk, you sort of get a little whiff of their breath and you realize they're probably drunk. You know, the sun's not quite over the yard arm yet and, Then this particular uh, individual who was a woman begins to talk about the fact that she's hearing voices. And uh, what does she do with the voices? And that these voices actually began when she um, was observing her female partner. Yeah, come on now. Wake up. Get with the program here. Her female partner in the shower. And notice that she had a tattoo of 666 on her hindquarter. And I told him, I said, in the, in the pastoral ministry fun, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you get to go to pastors' conferences and talk about. You know, it just doesn't, I mean, if you're an engineer, you work on computers, you know, you just don't run into stuff like this. I mean, this is, this is the stuff of, that life is made of. You know, Christians are sinners. And uh, I told him, I said, of course, the first question I ask is, are you on your medication? And when was the last time you took it? And after you have been back on it for a week, then come back and see me. But this is, uh, believers, just because you are a believer and regenerate, and we're going to talk about that in the second hour because there's much confusion about that, just because you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and regenerate doesn't mean you don't have a sin nature and you don't sin. The problem is that as we've studied in the sin nature, there are uh, opposing trends in the sin nature and there are some folks who have a trend towards legalism and asceticism and self righteousness and these are the folks that that they're they're not real prone to the more overt sins you know when it comes to uh uh committing some of the uh more infamous overt sins uh, th- that's just not a weakness for them they don't have a weakness in the area of sexual temptation or homosexuality or perversion or anything like that so when somebody fails in that area they're just shocked I mean, they just can't understand how a Christian can succumb to that kind of sin. And, of course, their problem is that their sins are the more insidious hidden sins of arrogance and and, uh, uh, self-righteousness and thinking that somehow their uh, morality impresses God. And we forget that Isaiah uh, 65 tells us that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and the sin nature produces Good works as well as overt sin, and the good works are called in Isaiah, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 64-5, they're called filthy rags. Righteousness—that That is, we call it human good. It is that good that man can produce on his own apart from God and has absolutely no spiritual value, doesn't impress God. And the only thing it does is impress other legalistic Christians who don't understand the nature of spirituality in terms of walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. So that's one problem is you've got the folks on one side who are just hypersensitive about any kind of sin. And then you've got the other folks, you know, the, the party crowd who, who uh their, their trend is just the opposite. And their trend is towards licentiousness. And, and they really like grace because that means that God took care of all the sin and, and I don't have to worry about it anymore. So let's just go out and party. Now, their problem is, is they want to diminish and, minimize the significance of sin in the life of the believer, and they can come up with many good rationalizations and justifications for that based on a distortion of the concept of grace, and so they want to sort of flaunt their sinfulness as uh, not really being an issue because, after all, Christ paid the penalty for all my sins. All I need to do is confess it. So it really doesn't matter what I do, and somehow God's going to wink at sin. And so they almost glorify their sinfulness. And so they want to overlook the whole concept of church discipline because that might violate somebody's privacy or it might uh, upset somebody, and after all, if you remove somebody from the local congregation where they can't come to church and they can't hear the teaching of the Word of God, how in the world are they ever going to uh, be reminded of what they need uh, spiritually in order to recover from their carnality? So let's not kick anybody out of church or, or embarrass anybody by telling, telling the congregation about their sins. And both views have distorted the whole concept of church discipline, And one of the key passages for church discipline is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So before we get to a categorical study of the doctrine of church discipline, which we'll probably not get to until next week because we have to get to the uh, first part or get into some issues in the sixth chapter before we understand the significance of it, Uh, we'll wait until we've exegeted the passages before we get into an understanding of the doctrine. Now, in the first eight verses of chapter 5, we uh, come face-to-face with the particular problem. This is a case in point in terms of church discipline, and it's one that is often misunderstood, especially by the legalistic crowd. So we have to take some time to understand just exactly what the issues are, what gave rise to the church discipline, and exactly how Paul deals with the discipline. So we begin with the first verse where Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. Now, for those of you who are a little sheltered, what we have at the end there, having his father's wife, that is a, a euphemism for uh, somebody who has sexual relations with his stepmother. This is not talking about his actual uh, mother, but his stepmother. And it's, of course, expressed in a euphemism, but it does indicate clear sexual involvement. Now, let's start off with the first word as we find it in the Greek, and that is the word holos. Holos, and I'll put that up here on the overhead You have a rough breathing mark followed by an omicron, L-O-S, H-O-L, long O-S. Now, this word is the root from which we get our English word, whole. And for that reason, in the King James Version, it was translated as holy or altogether. However, the New King James Version Uh, translates it actually as does the, as does the, uh, New American Standard and that's closer to the concept but it doesn't carry the full thrust. It's hard to translate this and catch the full nuance of it in English without using four or five different words which renders the translation a little bit awkward. But it indicates that this is a sin that is fully, that's the idea of holy or completely, that is fully or completely or commonly known. This is not something that this individual has engaged in that is only known to a few people. This is something that is so well known that everybody in Corinth is aware of it, and word is spreading throughout not only the Christian community in the ancient world, but also among the pagan community the secular community in the ancient world. It is a well-known fact. It's not something that is committed in private. It's not something where the guy is just uh, very privately uh, conducting his way in an, in an area of immorality, but it is something that is extremely well-known. And that's something that is a, an important principle to realize, is that when they come to this issue in church discipline, most people ignore that point. This is something that is commonly known, something that, as we'll see, the congregation, not only everybody, does everybody know about it, but everybody in the congregation of Corinth thinks it's a, it's look, isn't this great? We're, we're so grace-oriented. We, we've got people who are living with their stepmother, cohabiting with their stepmother, and it's not a problem because we understand grace. I mean, that's the attitude that's here. It is not simply that this person has committed a sin or that he has committed a, uh, a sexual sin. See, that's always a problem in our post-Puritan American society is we always want to classify sexual sins as somehow uh, the worst category of sin, but that's not the way the Bible uh, looks at it, although the Bible does emphasize that immorality, sexual immorality, is a problem. So Paul begins by saying it is commonly or are holy or fully, or it's a widespread report, that there is immorality among you. And the word for immorality is the Greek word porneia. This is the Greek word from which we get our English word pornography, P-O-R-N-E-I-A, porneia. Now, porneia in the Greek is the general word for sexual immorality, that is any kind of sexual conduct outside of marriage. God designed sex for marriage, for marriage between a male and a female. God didn't create Adam and Steve, He created Adam and Eve, and God didn't design sex for to be, uh, to operate in same-sex unions. Now, subcategories of porneia are perhaps many, but we'll just note a few. Adultery is one category of porneia. Now, the difference, everybody always asks, well, what's the difference between adultery and fornication or porneia? Because sometimes porneia is translated fornication. Adultery in the ancient world was between a man, married or single, a man and a married woman. I always think it's interesting how men kind of shaded things a little bit but adultery just involved uh the marital status of the female and the marital status of the male was irrelevant that was adultery uh sex between a uh, uh sex between a man and a woman unmarried was usually just classified as fornication if they're both un- if the woman was unmarried sodomy bestiality necrophilia or any other category of unmarried sex. Everything falls under this category of porneia unless it's legitimized by a legal marriage between an adult male and an adult female. It comes under the classification of porneia. Now, in the development of this word, it was often associated in the ancient world with cultic prostitution. That is, in the worship of the, of the uh, fertility gods, such as... Uh, uh, Baal in the ancient Canaanite worship, Astarte, and later uh, Athena in Greece. In the ancient world, cultic prostitution was accepted as something that was as common as eating or drinking, and it's an agrarian society. So as you notice around here, we have a lot of uh, farmland, a lot of corn growing, and so the issue is always getting enough rain in the summer. We go through some of these uh, hot spells like we had this summer, you wonder how the corn's going to do and, and various other crops. And so in order to ch- uh, encourage the gods to uh, fertilize the crops and to bring rain, the farmers would go down to the local temple and they would engage in, in a sexual act with the cultic prostitute in order to uh, encourage the gods to fertilize the land. And remember this comes out of a typical pantheistic view of, of nature, where there is no creator-creature distinction, that the gods are all nature gods, and what the gods, do, what man does, the gods do, and vice versa. So man can influence the gods through his own actions. This is really a background to the modern, I'm not gonna get into this, but in the modern, uh, uh, prosperity theology is is nothing more than than a, a modernized and somewhat uh, sanitized version of the old fertility cults, so man has often tried to influence God by what he does, and it took its most perverse form in the ancient world and um, No morality was associated with it. In the ancient world, they thought of sex as just another bodily function, no different from eating or drinking. In fact, in ancient Persia, it was the custom when a daughter reached the age of maturity, she would be sent down to the temple in order to lose her virginity in ritual prostitution this kind of degradation uh reached its apex with the religious apostasy of the Canaanites and that's why God had commanded Israel to kill everyone in the Canaanite uh, culture that they were they were under the death penalty because they had taken this to such a perverted extreme that it was like a cancer in the human race and God wanted it wanted it completely excised from human history now, in Greece, the fertility religions found acceptance only in Athens and Corinth, but other areas of Greece also had loose attitudes towards sex in general. For example, in Sparta, bisexuality was condoned and homosexuality was encouraged in the military. They felt like if the, the two men sharing the foxhole were lovers, they would fight to protect each other a little more uh, vigorously. So Greece, Greek culture was extremely perverse. And that is the background for 1 Corinthians because, of course, Paul is addressing these Corinthian Christians coming out of a Greek culture background that viewed sex as not being any different from any other uh, bodily function. And so whenever they had the urge, they just went down to the, the temple. For example, in ancient Corinth, not in the Corinth of the New Testament, but in ancient Corinth, remember, the city was destroyed and then rebuilt later by the Romans. In ancient Corinth, there was over a 1,000 temple prostitutes in the temple to Athena there in Corinth. Greeks had developed an intricate set of values in order to handle and justify extramarital sex. Secular prostitution or brothels were rarely known, but in Athens they passed a law that made it impossible for a a foreign-born woman to become a citizen, and if she wasn't a citizen, then she was limited in how she could uh, make a living, and so this developed a formal form of prostitution where the, these kept mistresses were called, by the euphemism, friends, and many men had a friend. Uh, in the Greek, they're called hetairae. And they were kept as a companion for a man. Often they were a little more educated, and that's who he turned to for his social life. And he kept his wife simply to produce heirs. So the Greek culture was extremely uh, perverted in the area of sex. Now, by the late classical period, approximately 200 years before Christ, the Stoics attempted to reform sexual mor- morality. And in Stoicism, there was an attempt to restrict sex after marriage to the marriage relationship. Prior to marriage, it was okay to engage in uh, cultic prostitution or or any other kind of uh, premarital sex as long as it wasn't done to any degree of excess, whatever that might be. So the attitude of the Greeks toward extramarital extramarital sex was extremely lax not unlike what you find in in America today having uh, had some discussions with folks who spend a lot of time with high school and college age kids today it's just amazing that in some areas uh the young people today don't think anything more of having sex on the first date than they do of uh kissing on the first date or holding hands on the first date. It just doesn't matter. And just because they have sex with somebody on the first date doesn't mean they're ever going to go out with them again. This is the kind of attitude. It just doesn't mean anything more to them than uh, drinking a glass of water, except it's a lot more fun. See, this is something that you as parents and we as a church need to address a little bit more in terms of our training for young people as to how to handle this kind of pressure and this kind of temptation in the world around us. It's not much different than what you find in the ancient world. But we have to recognize that the Bible condemns all categories of premarital sex or sex outside of marriage as sin. It's all classified under porneia. And just as it's a problem for the ancient world, it's a problem today. Now, it's interesting that in the conflict between Jews and Gentiles, when it became apparent in Acts that Jews were going—I mean, the Gentiles were going to be included in the church—and up to Acts uh, 10. Remember, the church was exclusively Jewish from the day of Pentecost up to the time that Peter goes to Cornelius. After Peter went to Cornelius, it became obvious that God was including Gentiles equally in the body of Christ and that something new was happening in history. So when the apostles got together after their... Some conflict arose as to just what is the relationship of Gentiles to the law and Jews to Gentiles. They had a conference in Acts 15 called the Jerusalem Conference, and the consequence of this was that they made a decision as to just exactly what was going to be required of Gentiles, and it's interesting what that entails. In Acts 15:20, we read that the conclusion was that we write to them, that is to the Gentiles, that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication, that is porneia, and from what is strangled and from blood. So these four things, idols, pornea, and eating that which had been strangled and which uh, was covered in blood, was apparently an issue, and all of this seemed to be really related to the idol worship and the fertility religions as practiced in the ancient world. So what basically what they were saying is we've got to make a demarcation here. If you're going to be a believer in Christ, you have to recognize that this is a break with your pagan past. You can't think and act like a pagan anymore. Same thing is repeated in Acts 21 But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and what is strangled and from fornication or porneia. Porneia is often listed in various sin lists in the New Testament. For example, Galatians 5.19, describing the deeds or the works of the flesh, the product of the sin nature. The, it is the first one listed, immorality, that is pornea, impurity and sexuality. Those three terms are all basically terms that relate to uh, sex outside of marriage. Ephesians 5.3 we read, But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you. Notice it's not isolated as a super sin. It is included among various other categories of sin. And Paul is basically saying, these things should not be uh, recognized among you as is proper among saints. In other words, don't get a reputation that this is what is condoned within the community of the church. Colossians 3.5, Paul states, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Notice all of these terms seem to relate to physical, physical, the physical demonstration of sin or overt sin. And then First Thessalonians 4, three, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So it is clear that sexual immorality is specifically isolated and brought out in the Scriptures as a sin that should be avoided because of the consequences that it has on the soul of the believer. But it is certainly not... Among the worst sins that affect the soul. That doesn't mean it's that doesn't uh, uh, reduce or minimize its significance. It just recognizes that you don't get caught in the trap of most American evangelicals, who, when they think of bad sins, the first thing they think of is some kind of sexual immorality. Matthew 15:19 states, "For out of the heart." Jesus is speaking out of the heart, that is, the in this, in this passage, as in the passage in the Old Testament, which talks about the heart being deceitful and wicked, above all things, who can know it? The term heart refers to the sin nature. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slander. So there it is just classified among uh, any number of overt sins, but the overt sins are not always the worst sins. Proverbs 6:16 6, through 19, we have the statement, There are six things which the Lord hates, yea, seven of them are an abomination to them. So God abominates all seven. This phraseology, six things, yes, seven, is just a Hebrew idiom where you're emphasizing all seven of them. Haughty eyes, that's arrogance. A lying tongue, that's the sin of the tongue of, of lying. A hand that sheds innocent blood, that's an overt sin of murder. A heart that devises wicked plans. That is a mental attitude sin of someone who is constantly figuring out ways in order to implement his uh, lust pattern. Feet that run rapidly to evil. That is also a mental attitude. That is someone who is who is constantly prone to committing sin. He's looking for the occasion. Uh, Proverbs 6.19, a false witness who utters lies. That is a legal uh, term, someone who under, utters lies under oath, not just a lying tongue, but he goes a step further, and one who spreads strife among brothers, that is a gossip, and someone who is slandering other believers and causing division and divisiveness. Now, nowhere in that list do you see uh, immorality, fornication, or adultery listed. So it's obviously a serious sin. It's listed many, many places where there are lists of sins, But it is not listed in this particular passage, so that indicates that it's not among, you know, when God thinks of sin, the first thing that pops into his mind is not sexual sin. Remember, the worst sins are the more subtle sins that are cloaked in goodness. It is arrogance that produces those sins. Remember, Satan's sin did not involve sex at all. Satan's original sin, he wanted to be like God. He thought he could do a better job than God. It was a sin that was cloaked in self-righteousness. The sin of Adam that plunged the entire human race into sin was not a sexual sin. In fact, it wasn't any of these sins that's mentioned at all. It was simply a sin of disobeying God and eating a piece of fruit. So when it comes to understanding sin, we have to realize that the dynamics are much more profound than its overt expression. But the fact is that in sexual sin, it's often an overt expression of a mental attitude of arrogance and independence or lack of self-discipline and self-control. Now, the problem in Corinth isn't simply a matter of sexual sin. It's not simply a matter of immorality. It's not simply a matter of homosexuality or or or, or any of these other sins. It is a particularly heinous sin that is considered to be uh, illegal in their culture. We see this in the verse as we read it. It, it, it is actually or wholly reported, completely reported, around that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality. See that term is the Greek "toi aute from the Greek word "toi utas." Now, this is an important word in this context. Toioutos, T-O-I-O-U-T-O-S, and it means of such a category. So as I stated earlier, porneia is the overall category, and there are many different subcategories of immorality. And this is a particular subcategory that is now the... the um, New American Standard says, or the New King James says, is not even named among the Gentiles. That's really not even in the Greek. It's real. the idea isn't stated, the verbal idea there isn't stated. It's, it's as if this isn't even tolerated or condoned. Uh, Paul makes it clear just simply by the construction of the sentence what the concept is, is that this is something that shocks the pagan world. Now, we know from studies of the ancient world that they thought that the concept of a man having any kind of sexual relationships with a stepmother was considered particularly horrendous. You know, think of bestiality. Think of how our culture responds to pedophilia. That is how their culture responded to sex between a man and a stepmother or even a uh, an in-law or an aunt. For example, in the Institutes of Gaius, who was a Roman jurist in the 2nd uh, century A.D., so approximately 100 years after our passage in Corinth, Gaius writes, It is illegal to marry a father's or mother's sister, neither can I marry her who has been formerly my mother-in-law or stepmother. So this is a clear statement that this was considered illegal in Roman culture. About a 100 years before this takes place, Cicero, who was a very famous Roman orator, stated with just complete shock, mother-in-law marries son-in-law. Oh, to think of the woman's sin, unbelievable, unheard of, to think that she did not quail. In other words, he is just shocked down to his boots that somebody married their mother-in-law. So these kinds of relationships were forbidden in the ancient world, and even the salacious and unshockable Latin poet Catullus, now those of you who never studied Latin you know, have yet to read something like Catullus. Catullus was quite a salacious poet, and nothing shocked him. He loved to live right on the edge, and in fact he wanted to shock everybody who read what he wrote. But even Catullus viewed such relationships as abhorrent. So if the ancient world saw these this kind of a relationship as particularly horrible, uh it, it was also true in the Mosaic law and in Jewish culture. And remember the church at Corinth is combined of both Jews and Gentiles. In Leviticus eighteen eighteen we read, and you shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive. In other words don't don't uh don't marry uh uh your sister-in-law while your wife is still alive. Uh, Leviticus 20, verse 11, if there is a man who lies with his father's wife, and the term there is particularly the term that Paul uses and picks up in 1 Corinthians because he wants to connect the reader's thought back to the Old Testament. Remember, the Bible is a whole. It is a unified whole in the mind of God. God is clearly rational And the Bible expresses God's complete and whole view of reality. And so the more you get into the Scriptures and see things like this, the more you will see how interconnected the Scripture is, and they can't just be a product of different human authors. He says, if there is a man who lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. This was worthy of the death penalty under the Mosaic law. So this is not something that is considered, uh, are to be taken lightly. Deuteronomy 27:20, cursed is he who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's skirt and all the people said amen. So this was clearly a sin. Furthermore, under rabbinical law in the Mishnah, in Sanhedrin 7 verse 4, we read, these are they that are to be stoned. He that has connection with his, with his mother, I left out his, the M there, with his mother, his father's wife, his daughter-in-law, a male or a beast. So homosexuality, bestiality, and having a relationship with a stepmother, sexual relationship with a stepmother, were all equally heinous under the rabbinical law and worthy of the death penalty. Now, from the context and the information that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, When he, when he states that this man has his father's wife, there's a number of details that are left out. We don't know if they're simply living together. We don't know if his father is still alive or not. We don't know if his father is still married to this woman. We don't know if the father has divorced this woman. But none of that, all of that would be just secondary circumstantial Circumstantial details. The issue is that this man is having sexual relations with his stepmother, and that was considered to be a horrible, uh, horrible crime and uh, terrible form of immorality by the unbelievers. Now, that's the other thing to note. First of all, in terms of before we build doctrine of church discipline off of this, we have to realize that the instance involved here involved something that was known to everybody. This was widely known. Everybody in Corinth knew about it. Word was spreading throughout the ancient world. It was not something that was done in any sense of privacy whatsoever. Everybody knew what this guy was doing, number one. Number two, he was violating the norms and standards and the laws of the pagan culture around him. He's not committing a sin that shocks the Christians. I mean, they should have been shocked over it, but, but these Christians weren't. The Corinthians weren't. He's not committing a, a sin that just shot, would shock some modern evangelical legalists. He's committing a sin that shocks the unbelievers. I mean, these pagan Corinthian unbelievers who think think anything goes, that every weekend they go up to participate in the mystery religions and dance around and get get drunk with the uh, priestesses of Dionysius and uh, have sex with them all weekend long, just have one long orgy from from Friday night to Monday morning and come home hungover and back to work on Monday. But they've had a wild time all weekend. These Corinthians are shocked by what this guy's done. Now, that's important because most of the time when church discipline is affected in 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 most evangelical churches, number one, nobody out there in the Gentile community even knows what the individual has done, and number two, they don't care. The only thing that I can think of in our contemporary culture that comes close to this in terms of a parallel is the pedophilia uh Scandal that's going on in the Roman Catholic Church today. Because here you have Roman Catholic priests who are being covered up and shuffled around from one parish to another and they're committing acts that are both criminal and abhorrent to the culture at large. At least it's still considered abhorrent to the culture at large. Now that's the problem is that it is a sin that is well-known among the Gentile pagan community, and it shocks the Gentile pagan community. But the other part of the problem is it doesn't shock the Corinthians. They've got such a distorted view of grace, and let me tell you, this happens in so many grace-oriented churches. It's almost like we go so far the other way because we don't want to get in anybody's face or get in anybody's business. We're so afraid we're going to uh, get in God's way that we forget that there are stipulations in the Scripture that says when some sins go beyond a certain point, you have to take action for the health of the local congregation. And that's the uh, theme of this passage. Verse 2 tells us something about their attitude. And you have become arrogant. Actually, it's a combination compound verb here. It is the present active indicative of the verb amy, to be, and the perfect passive participle of, of uh, fusiao, which means to become, to be arrogant. And the perfect tense in the participle indicates that this is something that happens in the past, but is, is a present reality. So they have become arrogant in the past, and they are still arrogant. They're still, uh, they still think this is something great. Look, we've got this guy; he's committing such a horrible sin. But you know, God's grace is great enough to cover it, so no problem. We'll let this guy come to church. And, and in fact, there there is a history of of um, interpretation on this passage that goes back at least as far as Chrysostom, who was an ancient church uh, father who who uh, taught in. Uh, the area of Asia Minor in about the 4th century AD that this man was not just a member of the congregation but he was also a teacher in the congregation now the text doesn't tell us that so we can't be sure or dogmatic but at least it has uh, it is a possibility that this individual was one of the leaders in the congregation nevertheless Paul says you have become arrogant and you have not mourned instead And this is the aorist active of uh, penthe, which means to grieve. And there are various places where Paul emphasizes the fact that there is a proper place in the spiritual life for us to mourn or grieve over sin. Otherwise, we're just taking sin too lightly. And that's something we lose sight of. Hold your place here in 1 Corinthians and turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. James chapter 4, James is confronting the, has been confronting the, uh, his readers with certain sins that are obvious and in their lives and they're not dealing with, particularly mental attitude sins that have erupted into fights and disruptions and divisions within the congregation according to the first part of the chapter. And in chapter 3, they gave rise to sins of the tongue. So there's definite carnality among his readers. And he gives the solution beginning in verse 7 of chapter 4. Therefore, submit to God. It's really a call to use confession of sin. They have to recognize that what they're doing is sin. That's the first step. Sometimes all we do is sort of academically or neutrally recognize something as sin. Uh, that's okay, I don't want to get involved in trying to figure out some way to make you feel emotionally guilty over some sins. There's always sins in some of our lives that, well, that's just our area of weakness, and we've been committing that sin for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and you can't artificially work yourself up onto some kind of a guilt trip where it begins to to shock you, But, and I'm not suggesting that at all. But James is saying you have to have an honest look at the fact that this is sin, and all sin has a negative and destructive effect on the spiritual life. He says, submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. That is a reference, The terminology used there. Uh, refers to the principle of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But then he says, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. In other words, don't treat sin lightly. And unfortunately, that happens too much under grace as we forget that That just because it's paid for doesn't mean that we need to treat sin lightly as if it really has no consequence in the spiritual life. And that's John's point in First John, that we need to be prepared for the judgment seat of Christ, that we not be ashamed when we appear before his coming. And the shame wouldn't be related to sin, but failure to advance in the spiritual life. But it is sin and treating sin lightly and staying in carnality that limits us and keeps us. From growing spiritually. Now that doesn't mean that at the judgment seat of Christ our sins are listed. They're not. They're paid for. But if we treat sin lightly in our own lives, then what's going to happen is it's going to retard our own spiritual growth. If we have retarded spiritual growth, then we're not going to be mature and we're not going to produce much in the arena of gold, silver, and precious stones. Therefore there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. So Paul says, you're puffed up, you're arrogant, instead you should have mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. In other words, the point that he is making is you should have mourned, that is, you should have recognized the serious nature of this sin and take and remove the one who is in your midst and the word for removal is the aorist passive indicative of the greek word iro which means to lift up or to remove and it is the idea that this individual needs to be excluded from meeting with the local church now there that is the that is applicable but notice it says that the one who has done this deed now that is a in an inadequate translation, he says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead for the purpose that the one who had done this deed, and actually that's the aorist active participle of prasa, which means the one who has been practicing this deed. This is not a one-shot thing, even though it's in the aorist tense, it's a cumulative aorist indicating that this is something, it's viewing it from the Point that it is something that is, that is ongoing and it's viewing it from its, uh, the fact that he's, he's still doing it. Rather that's a constantive heiress. It's an ongoing heiress. It's, he's still involved in this sin. He's still practicing it. Now then Paul shows us what he's going to do as an apostle. Now there's two elements to the discipline here. There's one that relates to the execution of Paul's apostolic authority. That's unique. It was restricted to the kind of thing that happened in the ancient world under the, under the apostles during the establishment of the local church. And in that instance, there were some rather harsh things that took place disciplining believers for their carnality. For example, in Acts chapter 5, after Barnabas, had uh, sold off his land. Uh, Barnabas was a rather wealthy uh, landowner from Cyprus, and he had vast estates in Cyprus. And when he sold them off, he gave the money to the church in Jerusalem in order to have the money spread around among the poor so that they could have their poverty alleviated. Well, he got so much attention, and everybody was talking about how, how generous Barnabas was and how much money he gave everybody that Ananias and Sapphira decided that they wanted some of that attention too. So they're operating on approbation lust. And so they sold off some of their land, but they were a little greedy. They didn't want to give it all. They got a better price than they thought they would. And they didn't want to give it all to the all to the church, but they wanted the same attention, so they lied about it. they said we're giving it all to the church. They didn't tell anybody what the they actually got and they kept some back. Well the Holy Spirit wanted to have a few little uh cases of it make examples out of a few things in the early church that you can't get away with uh, indiscriminate sinning and that there is going to be divine discipline. So we have our first case of folks who were slain in the spirit. Ananias and Sapphira instantly died. Now, you're just a little slow. You never were around any Pentecostals. Now, all you got to do is watch a little television every now and then. You'll find out what it really means to be slain in the spirit. But the only people that were slain by the spirit were Ananias and and Sapphira, and that is the sin unto death. Well, that's not normal. If it were, I would suggest that many of us would not have survived the per- first three or four years of our own Christian life because we would have committed some equally heinous sin and and not survived. So that is just an example of the way, the fact that in the early church. The uh, God, the Holy Spirit, and the apostles took some extreme measures in order to establish the precedence of the seriousness of sin. Now, in verse 3, Paul says, For I on my part, that is, since I am an apostle, though absent in body, but present in spirit. Now, the way that is normally interpreted, present in spirit, is that the idea that we often say we write somebody a letter, and we're not there physically, so it's like my thoughts are with you. But thats I don't think that's what Paul is saying. For one thing, it's pretty much demonstrated that that's not the kind of idea that you find in the ancient world. But the idea is he's present by means of the Spirit. It should be capital S. And what he's emphasizing is that even though he's absent physically, we're all one in the body of Christ. We're all unified in the body of Christ, and just because you happen to live a thousand miles from here, two thousand miles from here, when you get involved in heinous sin that brings a dishonor on the body of Christ because it shocks the pagans and everybody knows about it, it's going to have an implication for us. I mean, I don't have a whole lot in common with the Roman Catholic theology or Roman Catholic hierarchy, and as an evangelical pastor, there are... Splatter effects for us because of what's going on in the Roman Catholic Church. All clergy everywhere are, uh, being splattered by this concept. I was, I did a wedding not too long ago and most of the folks who were, uh, in the wedding party were Roman Catholic and we were just standing around afterwards chatting while they were taking the pictures and, and, uh, these guys had never been around a pastor before so they were asking questions about, well, what do you do for you know, all day long, and, and, uh, is that your full-time job? And, and, you know, questions like that. And then they asked me, this was, this was back in May at the height of the, uh, pedophilia scandal, and they said, well, are you married? And I said, yes, and I'm not a pedophile either. <laughs> well, that is exactly what they were, that was exactly what was on their mind. And they were, they're thinking about this. They're probably not believers, and they're just, wondering if there's any kind of credibility to the ministry at all. So so when a believer, no matter where he is, gets involved in this kind of activity, it has consequences for all other believers, and that's what Paul is indicating here, is that even though he's not physically present there, it still has consequences for the entire body of Christ because we are all one in the Lord and one by means of God the Holy Spirit. So he says, I have already judged him. In other words, he's exercised his privilege and prerogative as an apostle to judge this particular individual and to uh, announce that judgment. I've already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. Then in verse 4, we read the sentence, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So the first phrase, this is a grammatically difficult passage, and the first phrase is in the name of our Lord Jesus, and the question is, to what does that refer? Does it refer to assembling in the name of our Lord Jesus? Does it refer to uh, Paul's Apostolic authority in the name of our Lord Jesus, or is it simply something that is, that applies to both of them? And I think that the best grammatical solution is that he is recognizing that both the assembly and his authority are representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in, by stating this, this way, he is emphasizing that it is the character and person. Remember name in the Bible. Name in ancient culture often represents character or essence of someone. And he is reminding them that it is the assembly of believers that are the, that's the physical representation of Jesus Christ on the earth today. Jesus ascended bodily and physically uh, to the right hand of God the Father and what replaced his physical resurrected body on the Earth is the um, uh, local i mean not the the universal church believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, so it is important for us to realize that we represent to the world the person and character of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so when we are tr- treating overt well known heinous sin lightly it Cast aspersions on the character of Jesus Christ. So that's what lies behind that statement. So it is as representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, that similar statement is made of Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy 1.20, where Paul states, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, that is, those who had suffered shipwreck. That means they're believers, but they had shipwrecked their faith, and they too were delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So what does Paul mean when he says, deliver such a one to Satan? Well, first of all, there's the idea that when the individual is removed from a local congregation and from the teaching of the word that you're basically giving him up to the consequences of his sin nature so that he can—he—he he wants to be a sinner, he wants to live a, a licentious life, he doesn't want any constraints. Great, go and live that way all you want to and reap the consequences. You'll reap what you've sown, and in that process, God will discipline you. The destruction of the flesh, therefore, is not to be taken as the destruction of his physical body, i.e. physical suffering, but sin nature. It's the same idea that that is exemplified perhaps by tough love. I know of a situation where uh, parents have had to uh, remove a 17-year-old son from the family. They've had to basically kick him out of the house. Uh, not because they wanted to, but because that's really what he wanted. He had become so rebellious in his adolescence, and he had become so arrogant in his response to parental authority that it finally reached a point where there was nothing else to do other than have You want to live your life, go live it. And last I heard, the, the the son is now living in a pup tent out in a field somewhere because he tried living with relatives, but they all kicked him out. And the last time his father had a conversation with him, he told his father, he said, well, I'm learning a lot, but I'm still too arrogant to come home. So eventually he's beginning to recognize, he knows he's arrogant, but he still thinks he can make it happen on his own. And see, that's the idea. Sometimes you just have to let somebody go do exactly what they want to do, no matter how how bad it is, so that they see that how self-destructive the behavior is. And that's the idea here is that you need to remove them from the congregation. Verse 6, Paul says, Your boasting is not good. That's the part of the problem is you're arrogant about this and you've missed a principle. Do you not know, and verse 6 emphasizes the principle that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Now, most of your lexicons and most of your books and most people try to equate leaven with yeast and leaven is not yeast. Leaven was different and yeast is something that was regularly are freshly introduced into the process of making bread. Any of you who have baked, you know that. Now, if you've ever made sourdough, this is really what leaven is like. You would take a little bit of dough from the previous loaf, and then you would introduce that to the fresh uh, dough, and then that little bit of leaven would then permeate the new loaf. Of course the problem they had in the ancient world was that this, if there was bacteria or any kind of harmful, anything harmful in the earlier loaf then this would be transmitted to the next loaf and the next loaf is then contaminated by this little bit of leaven. That's why in the ancient world once a year, or one of the reasons, aside from spiritual reasons, that the Jews cleaned out all the leaven at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. All leaven was removed from the house, and they would start fresh. It had a secondary impact of of cleansing. But remember, in the ancient world, Israel's calendar is divided into the spring feasts and the fall feasts. And the spring feasts included Passover, which was a picture of salvation, and first fruits, which was a picture of resurrection, And third, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a picture of sanctification, the removal of sin in the life. And then Pentecost represents the new power, which is the coming of God, the Holy Spirit. So Paul is reminding them of this analogy to the Old Testament in verse 7. They are to clean out the old leaven that they may be a new lump. That's the principle as applied from the Old Testament. Just as, in fact, you are unleavened. See, that deals with... With works. It's not that you have to clean out the old leaven to be acceptable. You are unleavened. You were cleansed positionally in Christ. Now you have to apply that experientially. So we are clean. The old leaven has been removed because of Christ our Passover. But the reality in terms of our experience is that we have to deal with the sin in our lives. It's not just a matter of confessing it, but it's a matter also of uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit and over time and the application of the word, it will be uh, removed and we won't be committing that particular sin as frequently. Now, if you're like me, maybe you're not, but what I discover is more sins. You know, not that I'm limiting that, but what happens is the more you get in the word, you realize how how many more things really are sins. And so it's just an ongoing process, and you never get to that point of any kind of sinlessness or any area where you can say, boy, I've really finally dealt with that, because the next thing, you know, it's sort of like the the hydra serpent. You cut off one head and seven more appear. So uh, those of you who aren't serious about your Christian growth haven't discovered that yet, But but that's why we need grace is because none of us ever get to that particular point. So in verse 8, Paul says, Let us therefore celebrate the feast not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And sincerity there doesn't have to do with sincerity as we think of it. It's really a bad translation. It has to do with uh, genuine objectivity in the application of God's word. So we'll stop there. That gets with the problem, and then we start dealing with application and clarification in verse 9. And we'll start there next time and get into the underlying issue of this kind of judgment. The underlying issue has to do with the fact that as believers, we're going to judge angels in the future. And so we are to be involved in a certain kind of judgment in this life, because it prepares us in terms of maturity for a task that we're going to have in the future. So this isn't something that is uh, just a product of self-righteous Christians, and it's not something that is simply designed to protect the congregation from contamination from extreme licentiousness licentiousness but it also has a maturing and preparatory factor and that has to do with the angelic conflict so we'll look at that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed father we do thank you for the fact that we have salvation that we have been cleansed we are positionally a new creature in christ and nevertheless we still have to grow and mature we thank you that we have your word And the Holy Spirit who teaches us your word and it is not up to us to morally reform our lives, but that as we study your word under the power of the Holy Spirit, he is the one who produces that cleansing, that sanctification and that growth. Father, now we pray that there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal life, that they might know the issue is not their sin. The issue is not their works or their morality. The issue is what Christ did on the cross. Scripture says, he who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The issue is not morality but belief. The issue is not works but faith, faith alone and Christ alone. Father, we pray that if anyone is here this morning who needs salvation, that they would take this opportunity to receive that free gift by putting their faith alone, their trust, their reliance exclusively upon Jesus Christ. We pray these things now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.